Are you looking to optimize your performance, grow your mind, and change your system? Well, you've come to the right place. I'm Brad Baker. And I'm Tom Broback. And, and this, this is the Bold Base Performance Podcast. Welcome back into the show. I just finished recording part two with Cindy Lockhart, the registered dietitian and nutritionist that we had on the show about a month ago. At that time when we had her on, we talked about not falling victim to our family genetics, how we can change our life through our health and our diet. Uh, We talked about gut health, intermittent fasting, how to use food as medicine, why the standard American diet is not allowing our bodies to function optimally and what we can do about it. She had a bunch of awesome resources that she talked about, like how you can check your local water supply at ewg.org. And she also talked about how you can get discounted organic healthy food options from imperfectfoods.com. After that episode, there was a bunch of positive feedback that we got from email, from Instagram DM, where people were like, love the show, I learned so much, what do you think Cindy would think about this? And we had a bunch of different questions, and it got to a point where it was like, well, we should probably just ask her and have her on again to do so. So on this episode, we dive into how and when we eat making a difference, which to me was just fascinating to hear her talk about how there's basically like a right way and a wrong way to consume our food, both with speed of consumption, uh, not drinking liquids between bites, all these different things. We also talked about what about how the things you do before and after you eat eat a meal, how that impacts your hormonal response, your insulin response, your digestive response, and that was fascinating as well. We also get into a few different topics like how to do a healthy bulk, the risk rewards of things like creatine, alcohol, and coffee, and how we can implement those into our lives uh, safely and if they're beneficial versus not beneficial. There's a lot of interesting things there too that I learned. So I really hope that you enjoyed the episode today and feel free to leave any comments or reviews. And again, if we have to have a city on for part three, that's totally an option as well. So really hope you enjoy it. Let's continue to grow together and change the system. Cindy. So it's great to have you back on. Honestly, I'm really excited because these are situations where I just get to honestly just sit in and listen and learn. And any questions that I have come up, I'm able to just ask you. So really, it's like I'm going back to school, but like better than school ever actually was for me. So really appreciate you being back on. Oh, happy to be here. Thanks for for having me. Of course. So last time we had you on probably like a month ago now, um, had just a bunch of positive outpouring afterwards. People were really excited about the content. Um, I was really excited because you brought up a number of things that I had never heard of in like the nutrition uh, area before. So um, that sparked a lot more questions. And I had different people reaching out like, what about this thing? Or what do you think she thinks about this? And I was like, I don't know. Let's let's get her back on and ask her. So um, there's a couple main categories that I want to dive into today. Um, the first one being the idea of like how and when we consume our food, making a difference. Cause I think that for me is something that's pretty new to think about. Um, and pretty interesting too. Cause it's like, I understand it in the concept of intermittent fasting where you decrease that window of time where you're consuming X, Y, Z calories. Um, but when we were working together, you and I, like, again, maybe a month ago, you said something about like not drinking water between my bites when I was eating. So that dive into that a little bit first, and then we can kind of go from there. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we tend to gulf our food down plus just, just wash it away with, with water or whatever type of beverage we're drinking while we're eating. So we take a bite of food, we take a drink of water or beverage and we just keep going. So that ultimately can dilute our digestive enzymes. So I think we talked last time about how it is important about what we eat, but it's also about what we're digesting, absorbing, and actually using in our body. So we have to think about those digestive processes and how do we support that to ultimately get the benefit of what we're bringing in. So do you want to not drink water intermittently while you're eating the meal? Correct. Correct. Ideally, you want to drink between meals. And we have to be real. I mean, if you are, are eating something extremely spicy or it's hot or you start to you get something really dry and you choke a little bit 
you might need some some hydration to to get it down or to cool it off. So absolutely, you know, do that. But we don't want to practice of taking a bite of food, taking a drink of some type of beverage, eating, drinking, eating, drinking, because that will wash away and dilute the digestive enzymes that help us break it down. Which, yeah, I think even for that, like for you, it's like, yeah, that's just how it is. That's, that's common sense. But like for me and maybe for people listening, I feel like I was always taught the opposite. Like, oh yeah, like take a bite, take a drink, take a bite, take a drink. Like I thought that that helped it get absorbed better or something. Like I have no idea the rationale. Well, and I think sometimes the, the, what I hear from my clientele is for weight loss purposes. Like you have to have a glass of water or two before you eat and possibly even during eating because that's going to fill you up. So then you eat less. Yeah. But that doesn't work because water doesn't have calories. So it's not going to fill you up. What it's doing is when your body is dehydrated and thirsty, we don't always get those cues. But when you give your body what it needs, which is hydration, now all of a sudden you realize, oh, I'm not that hungry. So it's it's not for the purpose of actually filling you up because it can't fill you up. There's no calories. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah, that definitely does. So along those same lines, then if you're, so like if I'm eating a bad food, like something I know that I shouldn't be eating, but it's just like a guilty pleasure or whatever, do I then want to drink more water to like wash it away? Or like, I love you know that. what I mean? Like how, how can I use this whole like, drinking water versus not to benefit the foods that I want my body to consume versus washing away the ones that I don't want it to like fully make it through. So that it would be amazing if that would work that way, but yeah. it just doesn't. So drinking water is not going to neutralize the inflammatory nature of a sugary processed treat or something that's not healthy for it. it's more, more, uh, more processed. So, you know, really, I just encourage like, if you plan to have a treat, you know, make your own or pick up a healthier option with ingredients that you can identify and pronounce, ideally less sugar. So using more of a pure stevia or monk fruit, and then just pair it with a meal. You know, so part, I think more of having, you know, a treat per se is more of the glycemic impact versus washing it away with water because that won't happen. I mean, we, we can't negate the possible negative impacts that 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 what bad food or treat would have, but it, it's a blood sugar response. So if you're having something that's more sugary, if you have it with a balanced meal, that has protein and fiber and fat, it's going to blunt that blood sugar and insulin spike. Okay. Whereas if you have it alone, you know, so that's where a lot of people get into this blood sugar roller coaster ride during the day because they eat a lot of processed, refined carbohydrates and sugars non-paired with those stabilizers, protein, fat, and fiber. And so their blood sugar is just doing this up and down. And, and so you just keep craving more and more. And that's why we can't get off that roller coaster because we're not focused on what does our body need and what's going to help us stabilize it. Yeah. So I just took you off track for that one, Brad, but hopefully that, that helps. Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. And then that makes me wonder, like, does it matter the, uh, timing of like which one you eat first. So like if I eat, so say I'm having like a balanced meal and a treat. Um, if I eat the meal first, does that help? Yeah. And if that so, help help like, like just by balancing it, or does it help like my digestive enzymes being more like, okay, we're getting this healthy stuff first and then we don't really have room for this bad stuff anyway. So, or I don't know, how does that all work? Yeah. It, well, it'll come back more to the blood sugar insulin response versus the digestive enzymes. Okay. So the digestive enzymes are going to be called upon no matter what you're eating. It, so it's more in regards to if you have a balanced meal, again, that have those stabilizers, you know, some healthy fats, some good quality protein, lots of fiber from colorful plants. Yes, you might fill up because your body actually get well, we'll talk about the speed of eating. I know that's a question you have is that will will help deter your desire and need to have a treat or maybe as big of a treat as you were planning on. Um, but then it also helps to, to blunt again, that blood sugar and insulin spike. Okay. So let's, let's dive into the speed of eating. Like, does that, <laughs> does that make a difference? Cause like when I was growing up, I was a scrawny kid. So I was always told like, eat really fast. Cause then you can fit more in before you get full and get bigger. And then obviously vice versa, you hear like for losing weight, you're supposed to eat really slow so that your body 
don't know, it catches the up. Brain to gets the signal. Yeah. Is yeah. that true? There is truth to that. And, and really, it's going to come back to gut health. And I'll say it's interesting because I have had clients who say the same thing as you in regards to like, eat really fast so you can get more in. For you, it was for weight gain. Like, let me get more calories in so that I can help gain weight. Other people who are more reactionary to food will do the same thing. They eat really fast so they can get more nourishment in before they start to react. Oh. So it's really interesting. Uh, but it, but again, it's going to come back to gut health because when we gulf our food down, you're not giving your body time to secrete adequate digestive enzymes. So not only can that cause GI disruption and gas and bloating, burping, just any type of abdominal discomfort, but it also reduces the body's ability to absorb proper nutrition to fuel the body. So remember, it's not just what we eat, but what we digest, absorb, and use. So when we slow down and chew, so I really recommend 20 or more times or probably more realistically until the food is liquid before you swallow. So really being more mindful during the meal, you're going to stimulate more digestive enzymes and you're also going to stimulate the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is the largest nerve in the body that connects gut to brain. And so that's part of the, if you go slower, now your brain gets a signal that, Hey, you're, you're full, you're satisfied. You can stop now, but then it's a matter of listening and actually stopping. You know, some, some people can bypass that signal and keep going. Uh, so, but that's, that's really the, the correlation reverse speed. Okay. Okay. So you just want to make sure that it's fully chewed, you're able to stimulate that vagus nerve, um, not Vegas, like the place that you go and gamble, but Vegas, like V-A-V-U-S. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, just for the listeners. Um, but that that definitely makes sense. So is there anything else we can do from like speed of consumption or like what we eat first or anything like that that's going to make a change for the positive, whether it's for losing weight or gaining weight or whatever the person is looking for? Yeah. So the whole speed piece of like what we just talked about, but I think it even goes deeper than that. And it's more of the mindfulness because if we really think, especially for a lot of us working from home, it's like, what are we doing? We're working, we're on email, we're scrolling through our social media feed. We're watching, you know, binging on Netflix while we eat. We don't even pay attention to what we're eating. And all of a sudden we, we go for that next bite and there's nothing there. So we've not even you know, experienced or enjoyed our meal. And, and so that can also have an impact on your satiation. And, you know, you might go look for more food, even though you really don't need it. So I think it's also thinking of what are you doing while you eat? You know, so over 70% of the population have has digestive disruption. We know the majority of the population is overweight or obese. So we do want to really consider the act of eating as well as what we're eating, because that does have an impact. And then your, your question about the like food combination, I know that was a trend way back when. And you know, sometimes you, you hear people still talking about that. I am an advocate of, of, you know, our body is an amazing machine. It really can do some tremendous um, functions. We don't necessarily need to sequence what we're eating or combine certain foods. It shouldn't be that complicated. You know, everybody's different. Some people might notice that they do better that way. And in that case, that's great. That's the N of one. So I don't completely kibosh that. I think everyone is, is unique in that way. But what comes to, to mind for me is more of the power of col colorful plants. You know, so prioritizing that, I think, you know, that that's a question. What do I eat first? So I think, you you know, that was one thing we've, we've talked about in the past, too, especially if you have kids, you know, do, do you make them eat their vegetables first? Does that have any benefit? Well, the benefit is getting the, the power of nutrition in from, yeah. from the nutritious foods. So same thing as like, do you eat dessert first or second? You know, it's, well, I would put it in the second because it's all about bringing the proper nourishment in. Um, so it, it's again, that balance, but then also, you know, getting your, your, your plants in first, just because of the power 
you know, when we talk food as medicine, that's really where it comes from, from the polyphenols, the phytochemicals, the antioxidants that are neutralizing everything that we do in a day-to-day basis, which is creating oxidative stress. And then there's also, you know, in regards to, you know, the type of food, if you can tolerate it, and this really comes back down to your digestive system, raw food will naturally have more enzymes. So the more that we cook food, we're, we're degrading the natural enzymes that are in that food. So is that, is that like you're better off having a steak that is medium versus like, well done? Yeah. Well, and what, what also comes to mind with something like that would be the charring or, you know, anytime you, you cook a food at a higher heat where there's the black crispy. Which are delicious by the way. (laughs) You know, my mom used to love that. She wanted everything charred. Yeah. But that, that, that creates a lot of what's called poly polyhydrolyzed carbons. Oh my gosh, I can't even think of the name. Uh, but there, there are a lot of, of oxidative compounds, you know, so that charring is, is not healthy for the cells and for our health. So it's not saying that you can't ever do it, you know, but we really want to minimize the higher heat, the charring of food, you know, lower, longer heat is a lot safer. And the more raw foods you can do, the more benefit we'll get. Okay. So it's really twofold of, I mean, using that steak example, like not only are you then not having as much charred amount of the meat, but it's also, you have more enzymes because the food is less cooked. So it's more in its like natural state. Correct. Okay. Correct. Um, that, that definitely makes sense. I, I want to tie back to the eating sweets and the glycemic index and that part of it. Um, is there any validity then to using water to help like balance glycemic index or digestive enzymes or because like I feel like when I eat like on Christmas I'll have like a bunch of like bars and brownies and just delicious stuff and then I feel like the more water I drink afterwards like just more and more and more water like the better I feel exponentially like right when I'm done eating the sweets I feel I'm just rough and then the more water I drink I feel better is that just because like I'm hydrating myself. Is there any validity to that helping with my glycemic index, like balancing those things out? Anything hormonal? Like, what does that look like? That's a good question. Um, so yeah, it makes sense, right? In the brain that that would be the case. So it won't, it won't impact glycemic balance because again, there's no calories. Right. Water. But what water does do is our body is primarily water. So over 70%. So when you, you do adequately hydrate, you're, you are able to flush toxins out of the body. You're able to deliver more oxygen and nutrients to the cells. So it might be more of just the hydrational function of drinking more water is you, you can flush the toxins. You're not going to be able to negate it. I mean, you're not going to completely omit, you know, the calories and the sugar and, and maybe some other food components that your body responds and trigger and triggers inflammatory response from, uh, but you, you can help to flush away any toxins that are created. What about like pH balance? Like, does that help me get more like alkaline and maybe less acidic or something? Again, water won't do that as a natural tool. I mean, there are, there is alkaline water, you know, and I, and I, there's a little bit of a debate out there. Like, do we need it? Do we not need it? Yeah, I like to get separate, separate topic. <laughs> is that stuff legit or not? I mean, it, it's, it's legit. It's out there in regards to, do you need to spend the money to alkalinize your water? I don't know about that. Again, I, I, my, my uh, brain and cognition goes to get it through plants. You know, you're by having more plants, that's alkaline your sugar and your meats and your animal proteins, your refined carbohydrates are going to be more acidic. So we, we, that's our standard American diet, right? So the more plants we bring in, the more alkaline will make our body. So I like to do it through nutrition versus the water component. Yeah. Yeah. If that makes sense. Versus something more processed, more artificial, less natural to the actual universe. Like, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, just just using common sense, if somebody was eating the standard American diet, which is very inflammatory and very acidic, and then they have 
alkaline water because it makes them feel better. And that's, you know, helping them alkalize their, their, their body. Let's pull back. It's not about, you know, your, your water. It is about alkalinizing your, your body, but let's do it through food. And that, but that's what we do though, right? Like that's we want exactly, quick fixes. exactly, exactly what we do. And that's why all that stuff sells. That's why alkaline water sells. That's why all these different things sell. And I'm a, I, I fall, I'm guilty of it as well. You know what I mean? Like, it's the same thing where it's like, well, I don't really want to like change my habits. I just wanted to like do this thing that makes me feel like I'm doing something that's moving in the right direction. Even though when you actually take time to think about it, it, like you just said, like, it doesn't make the most sense. Um, but that is expensive. Right. Exactly. And then it's not really affecting our long-term health. So we also have to think about that. This is a little bit, this is unrelated to anything we are going to cover, but like, what are your thoughts on drinking sugars? Cause like for me, I, I just like don't see the value in drinking like soda or juice or anything like that. Cause it's like, if I want to get these sugars, I want to have it be something that I can actually like eat and consume and enjoy. And like, it's just such empty calories. And I'm just like setting myself up worse for everything else. I don't know. Absolutely. Well, heck, that's one of the, the, the biggest contributing factors to diabetes and metabolic syndrome. Is drinking alcoholic fatty liver disease is yeah, all these sugary drinks, you know, so it, it's, it's so concentrated in sugar compared to if you're having more of a, a food related item, you're usually going to have some fat in it. Now, granted, if it's sugar and, and more of a saturated fat or a trans fat, those are kind of like the vicious combination, like, like probably the worst combo. Like, that you can like do. special K bars? <laughs> well, I'm not going to speak specifically <laughs> to, to a brand. That's the most recent sweet I had. So I, that's why I had to ask you about. <laughs> But I think there's, but it, but I think it also comes down to it, how do we nourish our bodies and our minds, and still enjoy life. And it doesn't have to take, uh, like hours in the kitchen. It doesn't have to break the bank. There are so many ways out there, and that's where I really like to empower my clients to find those resources, find ways to do that. You know that you you can bring into your your lifestyle. We, it doesn't all have to be this quick and easy, which basically takes away from our health and our longevity. Yeah. That is yeah. Let's let's pivot a little bit. Um so okay. when you're so we always hear like breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Um is there validity to the first thing we eat? I'm not even going to say breakfast because like we talked about last time, I personally like to do intermittent fasting through the mornings. I know you said if I start earlier that'd be better. We can dive into that too more, but um the first thing we eat in a day is their validity to that being the most important. Cause like when I think about it, if, if I have like an engine and I run like the start of every day, I run like nice premium gas through there, like whatever oil. Um, and then I start eating stuff that's maybe more like your standard oil. Um, it seems like it would still be better off. Like if I like start my morning with something that's like really good for me, like a bone broth or, something like that. Is there validity to that helping with the digestive enzymes that we secrete or anything? That's a good question too. Um, and that's interesting. I, I've never really heard, heard it asked that way. So I'll come back to it. Let's just kind of pull back and realize that everything that we put into our body matters, no matter 100%. what time it is. <laughs> so I, I, I think, you know, if we, we bring in the cleanest of meals at breakfast, again, that won't negate if we bring in the standard American, you know, fast food, hamburger, fries and Coke for lunch and vice, you know, and something for dinner. So we, we got to really think about each meal is an opportunity to, to nourish our body versus create inflammation. So every meal matters. I think in regards to what you bring in that first day and what we talked about a little bit last time, what was really the, the insulin response and our digestive response is much greater. I think that thermic effect of food is two and a half times greater in the morning compared to later in the day. So if we, we kind of have that breakfast, like a King lunch, like a Prince dinner, like a popper, we're actually aligning with our body's natural response 
in regards to the glycemic response and the digestive response. And so we're, we're going to probably feel better and, and function better throughout the day and, and have better sleep at night. Okay. So I think it's more about the digestive and insulin response. Okay. That makes sense. So, so it is still, if you look at it, like, okay, tomorrow I'm either going to have McDonald's for breakfast or McDonald's for dinner. Right. And I'm going to have the same exact, I'm going to have, I'm not, but like theoretically, right. Um, I'm going to have the same amount of calories, same macronutrient breakdown of whatever each meal I'd still be better having it for dinner than breakfast. Right. Because then it's going to set my insulin response up negatively for the rest of the day. Wouldn't it? Cause like, if I eat that for breakfast, the rest of the day, I'm going to be like craving trash food like that. And I'm going to be like more like this, right. Versus. So Brad, are you trying to get me to, to say that I approve of McDonald's? No, I'm not looking for that. I'm, I'm saying, <laughs> I'm saying, wouldn't it still be better for me to have it for dinner versus breakfast? Cause breakfast would just set my whole day up backwards. So th- this opens a whole nother can of words because Again, it's a processed food. So when you bring in processed refined food, your body doesn't really know what to do with it. So you're not you're not nourishing your cells. You're not nourishing your mitochondria. You're you're not getting your your body's processes working the way they should. And and so it, it's kind of this like this this scratch that you can't itch. It just won't. You, you don't quite get there. And then you've got all of these inflammatory foods that can be a trigger for you. And and so especially things like gluten and dairy here in the United States, we have these inflammatory responses that actually create a a morphine type reaction in our brain. And so when we have those, then the body, you know, the, the brain is getting this signal, oh my gosh, I need more, I need more. It's an addictive response. So that's more of what I think you're going to be experiencing when you have foods that your body doesn't know what to do with it, or that it's triggering more of this opioid response saying, I need more, I need more, I need more. And so then you have this whole cascade of falling off track and and really having a hard time getting back onto the right nutritional track. Does that make sense? That, That definitely makes sense. Yeah. And I think it's a lot deeper than just like, when do I have that meal if I have it? I mean, we got we got to be realistic. There's going to be times where we have something that's not optimal and ideal. And there's certainly flexibility, but it really depends. Because if, if I and that's what I I use with my my clients is like if there is a sensitivity to a food where it triggers inflammation and maybe that whole opioid response in the brain, and we have a little bit. It, it can be just as damaging and just as triggering as a lot of it. So it's like being partially pregnant. We can't, I mean, we're either in or we're out. So it, it, everybody's going to be a little bit different too. Some people may be able to tolerate a little bit and get by with it. But this comes down to, again, the N of one. So, and for some folks, a little bit can be just as damaging as a lot of it. Yeah, that, that completely makes sense. Um and I do want to say that I haven't had McDonald's for like over a year. So I don't, I don't want you to judge me on that, but I had to get that out there. Um, okay. What are your thoughts on bone broth? I mean, I think it's fine. You know, there there's, it's expensive. It can take a lot of time to make your own. You know, so I think if it fits within your budget, you enjoy it, you feel good with it. There's no detriment to it. Is it, is it, I, I don't, I don't personally label any food as magical. So I, I, I don't hold any, any food type on a platter saying like, you have to have this every single day. You need to do this other than colorful plants. I mean, diversity and variety is key yeah. to, to really keep our, our health and longevity moving forward. Do you personally drink bone broth? I don't. I mean, I, I will occasionally use it as a, as a base for a soup, but no, I'm not, I don't like drink a glass of it. And that doesn't mean that again, it, it's, there's anything wrong with it. I, mean, I think it, it could be a good food. It could be healing in many ways for some people. Um, there are some that, that don't tolerate it. Well, you know, there's some thought that because it's coming from bones, I mean, that's where we, we hold a lot of our heavy metals is in bone like lead. 
Now there's been some studies out there assessing that, like if they had a organic bone broth versus a regular bone broth, and they really weren't able to, to extract a whole lot of lead from that. But, you know, everything is going to have a pro and a con. So I think it's really thinking about the whole synergy of what we're doing. And, you know, I, I know like just for instance, coconut oil was, was a huge trend. I mean, we ate it, we cooked with it, we put it on our skin, we put it in our hair. And, and that became actually more toxic for folks. Like they had a lot of imbalance occur. So more is not necessarily better in regards to anything. I literally ate in undergrad when I was just trying to lift weights and get big and whatever. I literally ate spoonfuls of coconut oil because I thought it was like super healthy fats. I need this, whatever. Yeah. No lie. It was disgusting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can put it in a smoothie, but right, a, a tablespoon of it, that would that would be tough. <laughs> Pretty gross. Pretty gross. Um, all right. So, and I also, I don't like it with eggs. It makes my eggs kind of like weird and coconutty and they're like, it's two different flavors that don't blend well. Well, and, and, you know, I hear that a lot too. Like people just don't like the taste of coconut. Yeah. And whenever you're looking at an oil, no matter what kind of oil it is, you do want to go with the extra virgin or the virgin option versus refined. Because refined means that they've used heat, which is going to use chemicals, and that creates more oxidation. But in the case of coconut oil, when you use virgin coconut oil, it has more of a coconut taste. If you yeah. use the refined version, it doesn't. But And there's one brand that I'm aware of called Mutiba that their refined option for coconut oil does not use heat and chemicals. Okay. It's a matter of knowing the different resources out there. Okay. So that could be an option. You could try the Nutiba refined option with your eggs and see if that's better. I, I'll do that. I, I still don't think it would be great by the spoonfuls. So I'll probably keep it. <laughs> you can also do grass fed ghee. That works good for, for eggs. I've been wanting to try that. I haven't had any of that before. Yeah. Is it pretty good? Does it taste like butter? I think in the case of cooking, it, it's not too dissimilar if you were to to put it on something like you know a piece of a toast or bread like that, you would tell the difference. It's not going to taste in a good way or a bad way. It it won't taste like butter because butter, you know, you you've got that solid substance that's in a brick, whereas mm -hmm. ghee is is soft and it's it's coming from the shelf. It's not in the fridge, so it's just a very different consistency. Does it taste good on bread? I've never really, my mom told me I used to eat sticks of butter when I was a kid, but I don't remember doing that. So I don't know if I, I'm averse. I can only use butter or ghee in cooking. I don't ever. Okay. So you don't, okay. Things, so I, I don't personally. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Um, okay. So let, let's, let's get back on track here. So um, what about what we do before and after we eat mattering? So we just talked about like the actual consumption of the food and how that all plays out. How about what we do before and after? So the first thing I wanna ask about is after you eat a meal, like going and sitting on the couch versus going out on a walk, what happens with that process? Like as far as digestion, the enzymes hormonally, maybe it's just mindset, like all the things that play into it. Cause I definitely feel a ton better if after dinner, I bring my dog on a walk around the block versus after dinner, I just like lay on the floor or lay on the couch. I love that question. That is that is so key, especially in today's world where we're all stuck at home. Uh, so it, it is ideal to take a, a gentle walk after meals, and that helps to support digestion. Now, it's not a hard workout. It's casual. It's like what you did, like walking your dog around the block. And it, and it doesn't have to be long. You can start with just 10 minutes and then slowly build up as you, as you feel you know, ready for and it feels good to you. Because movement is going to help stimulate the stomach and intestines to keep food moving through the GI tract. And so walking after eating also helps your cells use blood sugar and insulin better. So here we come back to that whole glycemic balance because working cells need glucose. So that's also important. So we know that probably one in two individuals are insulin resistant, which means our cells aren't using it. So we got to do whatever we can to support it. So that's how we're eating. That's how we're moving. When we're moving, um, resting cells of sitting on a couch. We just don't want to do that. You know, studies have shown 
the positive impact of taking 10 minute walks three times a day after every meal, actually for not only blood sugar management, but also blood pressure management. Mm. And, and the only time that it, it wouldn't be ideal is if you do have a real sensitive GI system or you ate a real large meal, then you know that could deter that whole digestive process. Because remember, movement is going to compete with digestion. Movement's usually going to win. So then you might feel more upset in your digestive tract. So if that's the case for you, you know, you may want to rest for maybe 15 minutes and then go for your walk. So still do that walk, but you might have to wait just a little bit of time before you do that, just to let the digestion work for you before you do that. Yeah. Yeah. How about like before, like, what if I like taking a walk before my meal, would that help with like my cell health and and digestion and everything? Or is it better to do it after? So like, if I was just going to do one or the other, I was going to either go on a walk before I eat or after I eat, what would be better? Now we're just talking about like a casual walk, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just casual, casual 10 minute walk. I'd say both. Do both. (laughs) I don't, I don't think there would be. I didn't offer up doing both. (laughs) Oh, you don't have time for that? I mean, I think they're, they're, you probably have more benefit after in regards to what we just talked about. All right. You had to pick one. I'm writing down after. Well, I like that. I like that rationale. All right. What, what about, um, so, when I work out before a meal, I always feel like I'm able to eat a lot more, uh, eat more like quote unquote bad foods or treats. Um, and I don't feel bad. Like, like I feel like no matter what I eat after I work out, I feel like great after that meal, you know, like even if it's like trash food. So is that more so just like I'm riding this adrenaline high and I have like growth hormone and stuff like that hormonally going on? Or is it like, I actually have more efficient digestion post-workout. Like, how do you explain that? More than likely, if you had a real hard workout and you kind of came in fasted, then you're you're depleting your glycogen stores. So more than likely, that's what you're experiencing. So you, you have a lot more capacity to replete those stores with what you're eating, especially if it's a higher sugar, higher carb type of treat or fuel. So you might not feel as bad versus like if they were full, your, your stores were full and then you had something, then you might not feel as good. Um, but again, I'm going to come back to the standpoint that, that I'm a true believer of what you eat matters uh, and timing and drinking water won't negate the, the inflammatory nutrient to avoid food. Uh, but when you eat after a fasted workout, you know, you're, you're going to dip into the fat stores to fuel your workout. You deplete your glycogen. That's more than likely what's happening is you're, you're just repleting that. So it feels good because if you had a hard workout too, I don't know about you. I know more my husband versus myself, but if he has a, especially a cardio workout later in the afternoon, and then he comes up before dinner, he's raiding the the pantry for anything sugary and, and high carb. percent, Which leads into my next question here, which okay. is, uh, I read again, back to my, I'm going to reference my undergrad days again, where I was trying to build muscle and everything. Um, And I was reading, granted, it wasn't a credible source. I think it was like bodybuilding.com or something. Um, And they were all about like trying to get these simple sugars after your workout, right? So they talked about pixie sticks, gummy bears, things like that. And to consume them right away after your workout with your protein shake. So literally for years, I would eat gummy bears after my workout with my protein shake. And that, and that was my, how I would rationalize it to myself is like, okay, I'm getting these simple sugars in. Um, I didn't really notice anything like feeling bad, feeling good. Uh, I don't know anything changing necessarily, but like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, is that valid? Like, is it valid to have simple, not what are your thoughts on judging me for gummy bears? (laughs) Like, is it valid to have to need those simple sugars to like restore those, those glycogen stores afterwards, or. I, I just love that question. It, it's not a simple answer because I think it really comes back down to what is your goal. You know, so if, if weight and body composition is, you know, like you're, you're not trying to lose weight or lose body fat. You're, you're a performer, you're an athlete. You're truly are working to recover and to replete those glycogen stores fast, yes, you know, a, a simple 
you know, hydrolyzed protein along with some simple sugars will get in there and, and replete that quicker. But as a nutritionist, there is nothing nutritional about gummy bears and pixie sticks. I saw you cringing. <laughs> so it, it, so it, I would go more for like, what would be a healthier alternative? And I'll even kind of take you down a whole nother path is just to kind of back up and think, because I, in my mind, that's more of a reactionary response because it's like you work out, you get hard. Now, what am I going to do to replete? Okay. I'm going to do something quick acting in regards to sugar and protein to get in there. And we know we need those to, to help recover and replete, but like, where is it coming? Going, I know where you're going with this. Okay. I know where I'm going. All right. So I think, you know, where, what's interesting, I don't know if you've heard of, of Bob Sibahar, metabolic efficiency. So he's, he's a registered dietitian that has done a lot of work with endurance athletes. And, uh, you know, I've, I've known him for decades in regards to his work. And it's really quite fascinating. So it's like a periodized approach, like depending on where you are in your training routine, but it's really a matter of like, how are you eating during your training season and then during your competing season? And he did a lot of VO2 testing, you know, some metabolic testing on these folks during all stages of their, their uh, exercise performance training and, and events. And there were marathoners who didn't have to have one ounce of sugar during the 26 miles. And it's all a matter of like, what are you doing on the front end? Because if we keep chasing it, we're not going to get there. And then all we're doing is creating more inflammation and sugar, like refined sugar like that is very hyperosmolar. So it draws all this water into the GI tract. And then you're going to be seeking out the, the porta potty, you know, during your event. That's not going to help in regards to performance either. So, you know, there, there's a product. Have you heard of you can say that again, you can UCAN. No, you so can, it's a super starch. It's made from non GMO corn. So it's usually non-flavored. They do have some flavored options. I think that are using stevia uh, and they have bars and they have the, the powders. They have electrolyte options, you know, so it, for any type of performance athlete, I always encourage to look at that. Because it's a super starch, it, it, it blunts that blood sugar and insulin spike. So it sustains you much longer and it's not hyperosmolar. So it's not going to be drawing the, the uh, water into your gut so that you have to go to the bathroom urgently. Uh, so that has been used also in the performance world very effectively. So I, I've used that with a lot of my my athletic clients and, and they've been able to train and do their events with a lot more sustained energy with a healthier source as well. So um, is that, is that something you have like during, if you're like a marathoner or is that like beforehand or after or all of the above? You do both. Yep. You could do it prior and then also during as needed. So that's going to be a, a, a much healthier source to use like for, for those longer events. But I think it's also now coming back and like, how are you nourishing and training your body nutritionally before, during, and after? So, and it really just comes back down to it. Cause I, you know, you probably know that you're more of an anomaly. I mean, the majority of our, our athletes out there even are still looking to lose weight and lose body fat. And so in that case, I'm not a big advocate of repleting. And, you know, a lot of the research out there is showing we don't have to do that in a matter of minutes as soon as we're done. You can do it several hours later and you're still benefiting your body. But it's what is that source? And, and so I, I've, I've always been cautious on my folks who are, are exercising in an effort to lose weight or lose body fat or both not to replete afterwards. Allow your body to continue to dip into the fat stores. You know, get, get a meal when you need, you know, but don't, don't focus on, okay, it's gotta be a three to one, four to one ratio of you know, carbs, to protein soon as I'm done eating or as soon as I'm done exercising or training. That so again, I think it's more of that N of one. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. I hadn't, hadn't really thought about that. So even that, I mean, if you were trying to. I mean, I guess even from like a bodybuilding standpoint, like with physique, you still want to keep your body fat percentage low, right? So 
because there, there was just such a big push for a while to like you need to get your protein shake in within 30 minutes after your workout but you're saying that you can draw that out a little bit more an hour or two hours i have no idea what kind of time frame you're talking and then eating a balanced meal is still probably going to be better even if you're trying to gain weight for like a body fat percentage type breakdown yeah and again it really comes down to what your goals are what your needs are and and how you tolerate it because i'll have a lot of folks ask me well should I eat before I exercise? I go, again, what's your goal? I mean, if your your goal is to lose weight and body fat, you're probably best off exercising fasted so that you can actually dip into your fat stores and start burning them more effectively. But some folks get really dizzy and lightheaded, nauseated. They don't have something. So that's a different story. So everyone is different. But then I would be more of like a, a smoothie gal. Like let's do a, a lighter smoothie before you go, because it's going to be lighter on the digestive tract, but it's going to give you some nourishment, you know, during your workout to help fuel that if you do feel unwell during your workout without eating. But again, it all comes back down to what's your goal and how do you tolerate this? So I think what I'm getting out of this is that we should not allow Hasbro gummy bears to be a sponsor of this show. Yes. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I'll, I'll let them, I'll have to turn them down. Uh, gently. <laughs> um, okay. So I want to be cognizant of your time. I know you just have maybe like 10 minutes left here. So we'll go through these last ones kind of quick, but they are things I want to get into just get your opinion on. Um, one of them kind of ties into what we were just talking about. What, what are general ideas, uh, big picture things, tips, whatever it might be for like a healthy bulk. And I know you, like you said, that's, that's probably a smaller, uh, group of people, but it's more close to home for me. So I'm, I'm curious um, whether it's like certain foods you would eat or certain things you do from like an intermittent fasting standpoint or eating immediately after workout, whatever it might be to like have a healthy bulk where you're not throwing down gummy bears and protein shakes and all that stuff. Yeah, great question. Well, I, I think just in regards to healthy bulk, it, it is making sure you get the, the proper nutrition in. So don't, don't bulk up on, on the unhealthy foods. And, and protein, I don't, I don't personally see any benefit of going above 25% of your calories in protein. You know, so we don't have to have a high protein diet. You know, there are some risks imposed with that, but make sure that, you know, probably some healthier fats because those are more calorically dense. That might help in regards to the caloric impact, um, but still get your, your plants. Like we don't want to negate those because they have low calories. So I'm not going to eat those because I want to gain weight. I think we still need to keep everything in, in, um, in, in the picture for what we're eating. Um, I know you had a question about creatine. Yeah. Did you want to address that too? Yeah. So I, mean, I, I guess just kind of the risk rewards of that. Cause I remember like <laughs> when we were, uh, again, probably undergrad, maybe even high school, I, I thought it was like a, a really bad thing, like a banned substance. Like people who do that are like on steroids, you know what I mean? Um, and then as I learned more within the past five, seven years, I feel like it's maybe pretty decent for you actually. Um, and I don't know, I was curious to get your take on that. Cause I, I was reading something about like the cognitive benefits that it might have as well. Yes. Cognitive and mitochondrial as well. So they're really the studies. I mean, there, there's been a recent review of over 500 studies and they're, they're really showing the benefit of short-term use which is 20 grams up to seven days as an ergogenic aid. Uh, so the, the biggest benefits are the gains in strength, fat-free mass and performance, especially on higher intensity exercise, so strength, power, and sprinting. But then, um, and then also safe long-term at lower doses, like up to five grams for a year and a half. And, and really the, the main symptom side effect is water retention and weight gain from the water retention. But if you're really trying to, build bulk, you know, a lot of, of those folks are happy with that, you know, because that's giving them the bulk, but it's more water. So it just depends. Uh, some can get GI discomfort, but I don't think that that's as common. And you're absolutely right. I mean, it's been used for, you know, therapeutically for a lot of other purposes, like your cognitive function, sarcopenia. So as we get older, if we're not doing anything about it, we're going to lose muscle mass. So it's used for that as well as mitochondropathy, so chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, anything in that arena. So I think there is definitely more reward versus risk when you really look at the evidence. 
So, so then that leads me to, is it something that we need to supplement with, or are we going to get enough of it naturally through eating like lean meats and stuff? You probably, I mean, if that is your goal, is it, it any of those things that we talked about, you know, so if you're, you're trying to build strength, power, you're a sprinter, you know, high intensity bout, you want more strength, more bulk, you probably would want to supplement with it. I don't think you're going to, you're not going to get close to the therapeutic dosages that you would with a supplement. Plus, I mean, there are so many other benefits. So then it just comes down to, are you okay with the fluid gain? You know, because then I, I, I kind of look at the, the, the bulk as being a lot more of that water retention around your muscle. Right. You can tell, you can tell like a, the different look. Yeah. Yep. So then it's just playing with it. I find out, you know, can you, can you use a dosage that is benefiting your, your purpose in performance, but not giving you that much water retention to kind of hide the, the definition. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. A um, couple more quick hitters, and then I'll, I'll uh, let you go. Um, alcohol. Is it always bad for your body? Or like things like red wine, they seem to get a lot of positives of like antioxidants and all these things. Like, is it still better to not? What should we think about that? That's a great question. And that's one of those, those individualized. So it's a, it depends kind of an answer, unfortunately. So there, there's a lot of pros and cons. Everybody is different. Uh, yeah, everybody metabolizes different and they usually know. Like if they have a drink and they get real flushed or they get, you know, real inflamed or they just feel crappy, you know, they're not going to be a good metabolizer. Other people can have, you know, several drinks and they're totally fine. So I don't think you have to get a genetic test to find out if you're a fast or a slow metabolizer, you're typically going to know. But then I think it comes down to what kind are you drinking and how much are you drinking? You know, so that the general consensus and recommendation is that women have no more than one drink a day and men have no more than two. And, and that's where it's interesting because I'll, I'll, you know, I do a lot of assessments of people's, you know, food records. Like, what are you doing throughout the day? And like, here's one glass. And then we have that conversation. How big is that glass? Let's measure that glass. <laughs> and so a, a glass of wine, you know, whether you're you're out to eat or you're doing your own pour at home, oftentimes is two glasses because it might be seven or eight or 10 ounces and five ounces is a true serving. So then it you know really becomes like, how much are we doing? Uh, so five ounces of wine, 12 ounces of beer or one and a half ounces of liquor. So it, it's, how much are we doing? And, and having too much is again, independent on what else is going on in their body, but it does place more stress on the liver, the pancreas, the heart increases, could increase high blood pressure, certain cancer, stroke, and weight gain. So again, it depends on what are your goals? How are you feeling? How are you metabolizing it? And let's adjust because at the end of the day, you know, we're going to want to have something on occasion at least. So it, it, it's going to really come down to individualized goals and tolerance, I feel. And then I think, again, it comes down to, to tolerance in regards to if, if they don't do well with, with gluten, you know, that comes over to the alcohol side of things, because that's going to be your beer. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a lot of the, the liquors. I mean, even for, for vodkas, people don't think about that. But I think there's, there's really only one vodka out there on the market that is not gluten containing or corn containing. What is that? Let's give them a plug. <laughs> Ciroc. Okay. So Ciroc is made from grapes. Um, so again, it depends on how do you tolerate these different grains that are made into the, the liquors in, per, in particular. Um, so wine, it does have a lot of polyphenols. So that, that could be beneficial, red over white. You know, so there is some benefit there. In regards to heart disease and cognitive dysfunction, um, what are you adding to liquor? You know, so is it a, a sugary soda or mixer? So that's the other piece. You know, so what are we adding? Is that creating more inflammation, more calories? Again, what are your goals? So that's a long-winded answer to your question. So it, it I don't see that as good or bad. Um, I do see it as very individualized, though. So in matter of what and how much. 
I personally work with a lot of, of clients that have mold exposure or yeast infection. So in that case, alcohol is a feeder. So that's not going to benefit them long-term. So it really kind of depends on so many different factors. So hopefully that. <laughs> that yeah, helps. no, that, that absolutely does. Um, so that yeah. same question then with coffee or with, with like tea, right? So if it's, if it's totally, and we're talking like black coffee, like black tea or green tea, whatever, nothing added, no creamers yeah. or anything like that, like straight up, is that a good to have or neutral or like not good to have? You know, cause like I, I'm looking at it from the standpoint of more so I'm not somebody that drinks coffee or tea. I don't feel like I need it from an energy standpoint. Like I, I'm basically just drink water throughout the day, but like, is that something that I should try to add in like a green tea or like a, a coffee or is it more so just like, yeah, I don't know how to think of it. That's a really good question too. I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for coffee, love coffee. Um, but so let me give you a little, little depends answer again for this one, because it depends on metabolism. You know, some people can have a cup of coffee and then they're anxious and irritable all day long and they can't sleep, even though their coffee was in the morning before 10 in the morning and others can have a cup of coffee right before bed and sleep just fine. So everyone's going to metabolize the caffeine differently. You're going to have way more caffeine in a cup of coffee versus any type of tea. Green tea will probably have the least out of those three that we are talking about, coffee, black, and green. Um, so then it, it's about the metabolism. How do you feel with it? They both have antioxidants. And the uh, tea, you're going to have polyphenols. So catechins, apocatechins. So those have some health benefits. And so in regards to coffee and tea, like what are the perks? It can protect against liver disease and cancer. It can help reduce the risk for dementia and type two diabetes, protects against heart disease, boosts immune system. So there are a lot of perks to having coffee or tea. And then the, the side effects again are personal depending on their metabolism of it. So that's the anxiety, the insomnia, you might get a regular heartbeat or it might disrupt their stomach. You know, they, they might feel little more acidic or it, it causes just some discomfort. So, you know, in some, I, I, I am a big fan. It just comes down to preference and tolerance and then quality. So quality matters here too, because your, your crops are using a lot of chemical and a lot of what is found on these crops is what's called mycotoxins, which make mold. So our, our black tea more so than the green tea and your coffee are very moldy. So if you ever feel like you get a lot of congestion, you're clearing your throat after having it, or you know that you have yeast, yeast struggles or mold struggles, you, you really want to seek out a mold and mycotoxin free option. I'm not sure about the tea. I'm not as much of a tea drinker as I am a coffee drinker, um, but there, there is a coffee that I have found that you can buy online called Purity Coffee that, that is organic. So even if you get organic, that does not guarantee it's mold and mycotoxin free. Uh, so purity coffee is, is what I have found that is organic, even higher in antioxidants and polyphenols than organic coffee. And they test every sample that is mold and mycotoxin free. And so if anyone wants to try it, you know, I have a coupon code for 20% off, which is C Lockhart RD20. It, it, it is a little spendier. It comes in the whole bean, or you can get the pods. Like if you have a Keurig, they also have more of the tea bag option for the coffee as well. But we, we love it. We use the dark roast all the time. So that's one thing to think about too, in regards to the quality. Um, and then in regards to like, does it break the fast? As long as you're doing black coffee or tea or green tea, it won't break the fast. You can you can even use a little bit of 100% stevia or monk fruit and it won't break the fast. But as soon as you add anything that has sugar calories, even an artificial sweetener, like a, a, a true artificial sweetener or any type of a creamer, dairy or non-dairy based, now you broke the fast. Okay. That, um, that code again, so that was C Lockhart RD20. 
Because yes. I'll include that in the show notes. Okay. Yeah. No, so that'll be 20% off for purity coffee. Sweet. Okay. Perfect. I know you got to get out of here. Um, really appreciate you being on. That was awesome. Uh, we'll have to connect again. Um, anybody who's listening, if you have questions for Cindy, um, I'll include how to contact her in the show notes. Um, otherwise, just ask me and we'll try to get her on again and, and field some of those questions as well. So Cindy, thank you so much for being on. Always a pleasure talking to you. And I feel like I'm just uh, able to use our relationship to gain so much knowledge that helps me out personally. So I really appreciate that. Awesome. Welcome to be here and be happy to come back again, Brad. <laughs>